Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about substance use, who it affects, the different levels of public health responses, and how we can help others. Before we get started, we want to thank all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. We truly appreciate your shares, your money, your subscriptions, and your reviews. You can also become a contagion by signing up as a patron for as little as $1 a month. This season, we have new content on Patreon. We will be hosting two Q&A sessions every month, one with us, your favorite scientists, and one with different guests we've had on the show. If you have any burning questions, requests, or things you'd like to ask with the privacy of anonymity, this is for you. Now let's dive in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Brooke Wiles, a PhD fellow at New York University. They are researching substance abuse, sexually transmitted infections, and comorbidities among socially marginalized populations. And they're here in person with me. Yay! Hi, Brooke. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, If you could give a short intro about yourself and then any contact info if people want to reach out to you. Okay, so my name is Brooke Wiles. Um, I'm a doctoral fellow at NYU, College of Global Public Health. I am currently in my second year, which means I'm coming up on comprehensive exams, dissertation proposal, all of that. And my main focus is substance abuse. Um, if anyone would want to reach out, my email is brooke.wiles at nyu.edu. Awesome. So you're a global health fellow? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a fellow at the College of Global Public Health. So um, my degree will be in uh, public health, a PhD in public health. Um, and then my emphasis is in epidemiology. Okay. So for folks that may not understand all the great tracks that exist in public health careers, what's the difference between just going into a PhD program versus being a global health fellow? What does that fellow part mean? So the fellow is just essentially like how I am uh, funded, basically. Um, So it's just the funding mechanism for the program. So I'm funded by the university. Awesome. I hope you keep getting funded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. And what is it that you study? So my main emphasis is substance abuse. Um, I also am interested in HIV, HCV, um, homelessness, uh, also mental health. Um, So there's a lot of sort of tracks that combine in studying substance abuse. Okay. Yeah. What, so HIV, substance abuse, is opioid like part of that for you as well? Yeah. So opioid use would be a a subcategory under substance abuse. Okay. Do you have a specific focus yet or are you still kind of generally looking at? So currently I work on a project um, on substance abuse in general. So really any drugs other than uh, alcohol or marijuana. Um, so this project is sort of two-pronged. Um, it's about, one, preventing people from transitioning to injection drug use is really the, the main focus. So people who do currently use drugs um, but don't inject, uh, about preventing that that transition since injecting comes with a great deal more risk. Okay. What drew you to that? I'm always interested in how people <laughs> get into the whole uh, the substance abuse world. So substance abuse in general? Um I should sort of go back a minute. So in undergrad, I was a biology major. Um, I was intending on doing uh, an MD-PhD and going into more like clinical research, like bench science. 
I was interested mainly in uh, HIV research. Um, I had an internship at the Institut Pasteur in Paris um, at their molecular retrovirology unit. And it was really during that time that I realized that I didn't want to stay in sort of bench science, clinical science. So I actually had an opportunity to meet the woman who won the Nobel Prize for identifying HIV as the cause of AIDS. And, you know, heard her talk a little bit more about, you know, even though she was a a bench scientist, a clinical scientist, I heard her talk about more of her work in the broader uh, HIV research community, more sort of activism work as well. And so that was kind of my first introduction to what is public health as a broader concept? You know, what does that sort of look like? And then that's when I started looking into public health master's programs. And so that sort of started my journey into the world of public health. And since I was already very interested in HIV, some of the obvious links to that is working with substance abuse uh, populations with MSM populations, and those were both things that I was very interested in. Yeah, so that's sort of the trajectory that I followed. Awesome. And then um, for the sake of our listeners too, what is MSM? Uh, so men who have sex with men. Okay. And that doesn't necessarily mean they have to be homosexual, right? No. Okay. Yeah. It's breaking it down because I, I didn't know what that meant either a few years ago. Yeah. Um, Cool. So that's quite the journey. You did an internship in Paris. Yes. So that was uh, when I was an undergrad. Yeah. That's really cool. (laughs) And then you transition in general, it sounds like from doing bench work and then you wanted to go out and work with, is it, is it because you wanted to work with people or is it more you wanted your scope to be a little different? I would say both. So one, I felt that, you know, bench science was too far removed from the actual issues for me. I did want to be able to work more with people and also just learning more about the social determinants of health, um, the more upstream determinants of health. I just wanted to sort of get more at the heart of what is causing some of these issues um, rather than just look at the the bench science. Sure. And, and you've mentioned the MSM population. Are there any other populations that you are specifically interested in at this moment? Yeah, so one of my um, main interests is in homeless youth populations. Um, that is what I did uh, a literature review on my first year of the doctoral, uh, the doctoral program was on substance abuse among homeless youth populations. Um, so that is definitely one of my, my primary research interests. Okay, that's really cool. Um, I don't do research in substance abuse or opioids or anything like that. Um, although I recognize that it is a very sought after public health issue is my understanding just because the issue is so large. So I guess for someone like me, no, not someone like me, cause I understand the public health significance of it, but let's say someone just isn't interested in number one, substance abuse in general as a public health issue Mm -hmm. and then they're also not really interested in homeless people as an issue because I think there's a lot of stigma in both communities right Mm -hmm. I think there's an argument out there that where they say well that people choose to be this way Mm -hmm. so they should just stop choosing to be that way if they want better lives what's your response to that as someone who works in that area So I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation about substance use and a lot of stigma around it, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, we've we've made a lot of progress in the field about, you know, understanding that substance abuse is a very complex issue with a lot of elements going into it. You know, there's the actual brain chemistry of what, you know, what happens when somebody starts to use a substance, how they develop physical dependence. 
And then there's, you know, more of the, the social and behavioral aspect of it that, you know, there are other social social determinants that lead people um, to start using substances in general that, you know, sort of predispose people to uh, begin to use substances. And then there's the chemical dependency that comes after that. So I think that, you know, there's a, a fund- fundamental misunderstanding as to, you know, oh, people just want to have fun and then they start using it and then they don't want to stop and they just waste their life. And, you know, that's unfortunate that that's how a majority of people who aren't in public health and who aren't in substance use that, um, at least in my experience, how they view substance abuse. Um, so, yeah, I think that one of the primary things is education on, you know, what is addiction? What are the elements that go into it? What are the treatment options for people who do have an addiction? And just really making people aware of the issue. Yeah. So I've had a few friends who worked with homeless populations in the past. And one thing that they've mentioned is that people assume that a lot of people are in the streets because they were drug addicts. And one of the things that they said was, well, you know, that's actually a really incorrect assumption because a lot of the reasons why people end up in the streets is money. Mm -hmm. Um, So they could have been not addicted to anything. Some of them, maybe, but they were like, you know, a lot of them, they got in that situation because of economic issues that were more or less out of their control. Mm -hmm. And then as a coping mechanism, then they turn to drugs or alcohol. And so then it kind of, they enter the cycle of, you know, you're homeless, it's really hard to get out of homelessness, Mm -hmm. and then you're abusing drugs and alcohol, so then there's all this, it just keeps going back. Um, Yeah, there's definitely a cycle that happens because, you know, whether or not the person used substances before they were homeless, or if it only started after they became homeless, homelessness can make it a lot harder to deal with your addiction Mm -hmm. because you don't have a stable housing situation. It's a lot harder to access medical care for substance abuse when you're homeless. And a lot of times you're put in situations where you're more exposed to the drug. You have more opportunities to get it. You're around more people who use it or who can offer it to you. And it's a lot harder to just avoid it in general when it's something that's constantly surrounding you. So it definitely creates sort of a cycle of making it harder to get out of both issues, to to find stable housing and to seek care and treatment for substance abuse. Now, what are your views on access to things like rehab centers Mm -hmm. um, or just treatment in general? Because I feel like rehab centers are really expensive. (laughs) Um, That's my understanding. It costs like thousands of dollars to even like go in and be at a facility like that. Yeah, I think it depends on what kind of treatment you're looking for. If it's like um, complete inpatient rehab, quote unquote, for a long period of time, that can definitely cost a lot of money. We're fortunate in New York City to have access to uh, a large variety of treatment options, particularly for people um, with opioid dependence. Um, There are a variety of different options. Um, There are counseling options, there are methadone programs, there are some buprenorphine programs, in some cases detox programs. Um, so there is, uh, there's many options in New York City okay. um, for people with a substance use disorder. However, that's not the case everywhere. And we're very lucky here to have that access. Okay. Yeah. So I'm actually really unfamiliar with a lot of the different types of treatment options that you just mentioned. So you primarily work in New York City, right? Yes. 
Okay, so can you give just a general idea of, number one, the substance abuse issue in New York City, um, and perhaps more with the population that you're working with, and then and then moving down the pipeline into treatment options that are available, and then, yeah, let's start from there. Okay, so for, for drug use sort of in general, so obviously there are a lot of different substances that people can be addicted to. If, we, if it's um, easier, we can pick just yeah, one. Okay. So we can just go with opioids okay. since most people are aware um, of that. Yeah, so you know, opioids include things like heroin, Percocet, Oxycontin, you know, a lot of prescription painkillers, um, and then heroin and fentanyl, which are the two main illicit uh, opioids that people are aware of. So sort of treatment options for those can be broader than treatment options for other illicit substances like cocaine, uh, crack cocaine, a variety of uh, other psychoactive substances. Because opioids are much more, you know, present, there's a lot more research on them. So one of the primary treatment options that you'll hear about is methadone. Um, so methadone is uh, essentially opioid substitution therapy. So it is a it is an opioid that um, has a much uh, longer half-life than, say, heroin or other opioids. Um, so someone can, once they're admitted to a methadone clinic, they can go to a methadone clinic every morning um, and take a dosage of methadone, um, which allow, allows them to prevent themselves from going through all of the horrible physical withdrawal symptoms that come with opioid dependence. So it can be a great way to allow someone to you know, sort of continue on with their daily life without, you know, going through all of these withdrawal symptoms and then pops- possibly relapsing because of these withdrawal symptoms. Sorry. So is it more of like it reduces the re- withdrawal symptoms or does it make it go away completely? It depends on the dosage, but ideally okay. it makes it go away completely. Okay. So that's probably the one of the most well-known options for opioid use. However, you know, there are difficulties. It can make it difficult for people to live a stable life if every morning they have to go to a methadone clinic, which is oftentimes quite far from where they live, mm-hmm. to stay there and take their daily dosage. And then, you know, at that point, you know, you know, can they hold a stable job because they have to go do this every morning? Sure. So, so that can make it difficult, particularly when people have been on methadone for a long period of time, you know, they're stabilized and, you know, how do they re-enter the workforce um, and, you know, normal daily life when that's something that they have to travel to every day. Another option is buprenorphine, which you'll also hear called Suboxone, which is uh, another opioid similar to the way methadone works, um, except that in this case, buprenorphine can actually be prescribed by a primary care provider. And it is something that you can be prescribed in small amounts to actually take home with you so that you don't have to go somewhere every single day to take this dosage. So that is another treatment option that um, unfortunately I think is less known and a lot harder to access um, because you you do have to go through a primary care provider. Not all primary care providers offer it because unfortunately stigma against substance use still exists even within the medical community. So that is another option out there though. And then there are other, you know, non-prescription treatment options such as, you know, counseling, which ideally should be combined with any of these other medical treatment options. Um, there are also some detox programs, though those aren't as common anymore. There are other inpatient treatment options, but again, those are less common and a lot of people don't want to go into inpatient treatment and leave their entire lives for weeks. Sure. Mm-hmm. My follow-up question to that then is, you've given us a lot of treatments once someone has uh, is seeking 
care, you know, at, at whatever level, but they've, they're at some point in their addiction and they're seeking care, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we, you mentioned earlier that you were interested in the upstream approach, mm-hmm. um, the public health approach to this. So what does that look like um, when we're thinking about that pipeline from they've, they're addicted and then they're seeking treatment? Where does public health fit in that? Yeah, so I think there's a, a, a combination of things. So starting with the social determinants of health, so really preventing people from beginning to abuse substances in the first place. And then if people are already using substances, aren't particularly interested in treatment yet, is the harm reduction approach. So if someone is going to continue to use substances to make sure they're doing it as safely as possible. And then there's the actual treatment options to try to decrease or stop the substance use. So sort of beginning with the the social determinants of health, you know, these are the same determinants that we talk about really when we talk about any health issue in general and stuff like, you know, poverty um, primarily because um, if somebody doesn't have uh, a stable source of income, you know, some people before they even start using drugs um, may turn to small time dealing to make a living for themselves and then start using the drug. And then it sort of spirals from there. Many people who are in that sort of situation, if they're if their parents use drugs, that can also get somebody uh, started. I've had people tell me who their first time using drugs was when you know their parent who used heroin injected them as a child. Um, oh my gosh! Yeah. So sort of stopping the cycle from the beginning, especially in terms of poverty, in terms of housing. All of these uh, upstream determinants make a difference. So I don't know if either of you guys have heard of this. Um, I, I forget the actual name of it, but there was an experience with uh, there was an experiment with uh, rats. So there was an experiment back in the day. Um, they they did an experiment with rats and drugs, and then someone decided to take that a little bit further and say, okay, we're going to put these rats not in just a cage with heroin, but we're going to do two groups. One, where they're just uh, in a cage, no sort of stimulus, nothing else, but they have access to heroin. And, you know, those rats constantly go for the heroin, you know. Anytime it's available, they go to it because they have nothing nothing else to do. Um, But if you put them in a more complex environment with many enriching activities with other rats to uh, to spend time with, they very infrequently go to the heroin and they don't become addicted to it either. The ones that do use it, you know, do it occasionally, um, but it's not, they don't become addicted like the rats in just mm-hmm. a plain empty cage do. So if you think about, you know, humans like that, it's about providing an enriching and stable environment for everyone. So interesting because it's really true. Like the more stimulation that you have where you can put your time towards something that is different from just having that one source of I'm going to go get heroin (laughs) all the time. Like it is different. Um, So is there a way to really predict who will be addicted or who wouldn't be addicted? Because you've talked a lot about social determinants. So things like poverty or, you know, if they have a parent who abused, um, who was a substance abuser. So if we have, let's say, those kind of conditions, then we know that the individual is maybe more prone to that. Um, but is there a way to like really know for sure? Because then it, at the end of the day, it also comes down to maybe that individual's choice later in life to choose to use drugs or alcohol, right? I don't think there's a way to predict for, you know, a specific person in, in general. Obviously, you can say that, okay, in communities where there's a lot more poverty, um, there's a lot more crime, unemployment, 
lack of housing, that in those communities in general, substance abuse may be higher um, because it is more available, because there are not other things to do, because they don't have other ways to support themselves. Um, but I don't think that's really something we can predict on an individual level. There are obviously factors that make somebody predisposed to addiction, but not to the point where we can say, for sure, this person is going to become addicted to drugs or this person is not. Yeah. I wonder if you know of, because right now we're looking kind of a deficit lens, right? Like, oh, these are the issues, risk factors. But let's say we looked at the other side of it. Um, and maybe there, there are plenty of individuals maybe who have grown up with all those predisposing factors and those kind of situations, but they end up not being addicted um, and not being substance abusers. So then what, what factors exist in those people that, that help them along the way? Obviously, you know, being in a in an environment where people are not actively using substances, for example, if you grew up in an impoverished community, but you know the people close to you didn't use drugs, that's also a, you know going to make you less likely to try it, um, to become addicted to it, and it's if they get other opportunities in life that you know keep them occupied um keep them away from drugs um obviously that's going to prevent someone even if they do use it occasionally um it would prevent someone from you know starting to to get into that cycle of using every day i don't think we can say for sure that there is you know a certain gene or a certain anything like that that makes a person not get addicted to drugs Um, there may be genetic influences, but I don't think there's, you know, something in particular that we can point to Mm -hmm. and say, you know, that's why people don't get addicted to drugs. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, this might sound like a stupid question. I have a lot of friends who use drugs for some reason and, but then I don't know if I would consider them drug abusers. Um, so what's like, is there a certain point or a definition where you go from, go from being a recreational, like I just use drugs once in a while to I am a substance abuse abuser? So one, just for like terminology clarification, Mm -hmm. one term we typically use is people who use drugs so that it's not like, uh, stigmatizing to the person saying, oh, an addict or like a substance abuser. Um, they're still a person um, who uses drugs. So anyway, clarifying that. Um, that. There is a difference between if somebody is physically dependent on a drug, obviously, you know, they're going to go through withdrawal symptoms when they're not using it. So there is a clear, you know, sort of definition of what is physical dependence. But that's not really the only factor at play. There's also, you know, sort of psychological dependence. Is it something that you use as a coping mechanism when you're going through some really tough times? Is that the case? Or is it just something that you do very rarely for enjoyment? Um, And it doesn't sort of cross that line into this is something that you're using to escape something else. So that's interesting because then that, in my mind, that automatically brings in things like marijuana, which um, my understanding is that there doesn't seem to be a physical dependence with marijuana use. So weed is sort of a complicated topic um, because there are very, there are many different strains of marijuana. Um, So this is not my focus area, but I can talk a little, a little bit about it. Um, So, you know, there are, some two main compounds that we hear a lot about when we talk about weed. So that's CBD and THC. So THC is the component that actually gets a person high. THC itself has been shown to be addictive. So THC is addictive. CBD, however, 
um, is not addictive. Um, and re- some research actually shows that CBD has anti-addictive properties. So when a weed has a proper balance of, you know, THC and CBD, um, it be- becomes less likely that somebody is going to become, you know, physically addicted to weed. However, um, especially in recent years, the strains of marijuana that are really on the market are very high THC and very low CBD. So that is definitely something to consider. Um, so okay. we can't really say, okay, weed in general is addictive or weed in general is not addictive um, because there are different, you know, sort of chemical makeups to consider. Okay. Saying that, there are also more recent studies where they are testing CBD itself um, as a treatment for addictions to other substances, like, you know, heroin dependence or cocaine dependence. So that is also sort of a a promising field to look at. And as a researcher, um, what's your take on this, the very common notion that weed is the gateway drug? (laughs) So, you know... (laughs) <laughs> That's obviously a, contro- a very controversial question. I have plenty of participants in the study that I work on that I talk to who use heroin or other opioids who tell me, you know, I can't believe people are legalizing weed. Like, oh, it's a gateway drug. Hmm. And, you know, I was not expecting that at all when I when I first started doing this. There are plenty of other people who who think that, you know, weed is not an issue. You know, it's hmm. it's not a problem at all. Like I said, weed is not my sort of subspecialty. Yeah. yeah. Um, current, currently, based on what I know about it, I think that it really depends on the chemical composition of the weed we're talking about. And like I said, in more recent years, it has been shown that the THC is increasing in the strains that are on the market. So that's something to consider. I, I do think, in my opinion, that it should be legalized, but we might want to consider sort of controlling what strains are on the market. Okay. And then with the drugs that you're specifically looking at are heroin. You, you broke up earlier when you were listening. Yeah. To so for the study that I work on, it's really any drugs except for marijuana, alcohol, or like nicotine. So anything other than that, those. So that includes opiates, so stuff like heroin and prescription painkillers. It also includes things like benzodiazepines, so that's stuff like Xanax. It also includes, obviously, cocaine and crack cocaine. It also includes stuff like, you know, Molly or LSD or quote-unquote shrooms, stuff like psilocybin. Yeah. So it's it's very broad, um, but the majority of people that I work with use either an opiate or some form of cocaine. Okay. And are there differences in what drugs show up in different um, communities? So I'm thinking like, you know, in higher socioeconomic settings, are there different drugs that they're more prone, that they're, um, that blah, 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 that are com- tend to come up more versus in lower socioeconomic settings or maybe even in, I don't know if there's like racial distinctions in that as well. I think there are a lot of factors that come into play, both, um, both with economic disparities so, and also with location as well. Okay. So, for example, in more rural areas, you may see that, you know, if people become physically dependent on a prescription painkiller, like, let's say, Percocet, um, mm-hmm. it's easier for them to keep getting prescribed Percocet or find somebody else who's prescribed it, rather than as soon as they run out, finding somebody who can sell them heroin. Versus in a more urban setting, if somebody becomes addicted to the painkiller that they were prescribed for a surgery, after it runs out, they have many more options to just go find somebody who will sell them heroin. There's also obviously price differences in drugs. Crack tends to be a much cheaper drug than, say, cocaine. Um, so you will see that more in uh, lower socioeconomic groups. 
Okay. Crack is different from cocaine? Chemically, it is uh, essentially the same, but it's uh, a different format. So powder okay. cocaine is like, like it sounds like comes in a, a powder. Okay. Um, crack cocaine comes in sort of like crystals. Is that? Oh, okay. So many questions. So crack cocaine is typically smoked and powder cocaine yeah. is typically sniffed or sometimes injected. Okay. Um, in New York City, then, what does it look like? Because it's a it's big city, number one, with a lot of people. So is it you just see like a number of everything or do you see a little bit more of one thing over the other? I mean, in my work, I've seen mm-hmm. mostly heroin, benzodiazepines, and cocaine and crack cocaine. Um, okay. In general, since it's such a big city, there is really everything with opiates like heroin and fentanyl and crack and cocaine being really the primary ones on the scene. However, there is um, use of methamphetamines, um, primarily in MSM communities. Hmm. And, okay, this question is going to come more from the fact that I know you, <laughs> like I know more about your research. How, like, you're in New York City, you're conducting your research here, mm-hmm. and you tend to see, um, like, similar population communities. So mm-hmm. how do you conduct your research like where do you find people to participate in the research since it's such a stigmatized topic and then like where how do you so that's that is very difficult and i think that is still an area of troubleshooting for most people who do research on substance abuse um the study that i work on we do street intercept recruitment which means we go up to people on the street and we ask them if we can ask them a few questions and if they say yes, you know, we, you know, sort of take them aside and ask them a, a few questions to see if they're currently using substances. And if they agree to participate, um, we give them a coupon to come in at a later date. So that is one way of doing it. And then we do what's called respondent-driven sampling, where the people we see then recruit other people they know who also use drugs. That's one way of doing it. A lot of studies also recruit from treatment programs or from harm reduction programs. Um, So they may have a partnership with, say, a methadone program or a syringe exchange program um, where they uh, source participants, they recruit participants from those programs. I think this results in, we we look at very specific subsections of people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it is much harder to reach um, people who use drugs of higher socioeconomic status. Um, so I think it's mostly, you know, lower socioeconomic status that most studies end up recruiting. Yeah. And like most studies, as in like studies that are also taking place in other cities and states and countries possibly. Yeah. Like anywhere. I mean, especially, yeah. so let's say my study, for example, the study that I work on, we, for the intervention that I conduct, we then pay participants $30 for coming in talking with us for such a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, that's not really going to motivate somebody who makes $500,000 a year. They're not going to divulge their entire personal life and their drug use for $30. So it definitely results in a a skewed sample. Do you think that studies that might be taking place in, like, I know that... um, UNC Chapel Hill has a lot of research going on with opioids mm-hmm. um, in some place like that where I feel like it's not, I mean, I don't really know the demographic of Chapel Hill in the surrounding <laughs> area, to be quite honest. Um, but I, I get the impression from like the one time, like 
one, two times that I've been there that it's not quite the same of like a drastic extremes in terms of like socioeconomic class as it is in New York City. Um, do you think like some places like that or would have more access to people that might have a different background and can give more types of like more information mm-hmm. for like understanding like mechanisms yeah. of the addiction or possibly, I mean, I don't, I just like I don't know why I keep thinking of like the celebrity rehab centers. Yeah, like, so like partnerships and places like that. Yeah, it definitely depends on where you're recruiting from. Yeah. If you could get a, a high class yeah. um, rehab center to let you recruit participants there, yeah, um, you know, you would definitely get a very different sample yeah. than you get recruiting from say syringe exchange programs. Um, the likelihood of getting some of those places to let you recruit from them, Fair. I think, is slim to none. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely depends on where where you can form a partnership with, um, versus just uh, also recruiting people that you, you meet on the street. I think that's interesting because, like, I feel like so much of the stigmatization is uh, making the assumption that there's like drug use or misuse is only those that are like in lower socioeconomic yeah. classes or status right the poor people probably yeah Yeah. exactly but i feel like there's also so much of a like for lack of a better term like top like one percent like elite class like people Mm -hmm. that are at like the top because i hear so much about things like i don't know if you know much about it like Mm -hmm. people that are in like consulting or finance are like oh yeah we like our boss is just like microdose all the time which is also a problem they're just like continuously Mm -hmm. all day doing something yeah so yeah like a how it, it definitely is present yeah. in any yeah. any population, yeah. regardless of socioeconomic status. And I think one of the reasons that it's becoming a bit easier to talk about addiction is because it is becoming more apparent that it doesn't just affect you know impoverished communities of color, mm-hmm. um, especially with the opioid crisis affecting more sort of middle class or white rural ish areas. Um, from first becoming addicted to uh, prescription opioids that a doctor prescribed them. Um, And I think that has allowed people to talk about it more Mm -hmm. um, than when it was more seen as an issue for those quote-unquote people over there. I mean, it's ridiculous that it had to be a substance that was first predominantly misused by upper-middle-class white people. For people to care, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, okay, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I actually that—that's the question that I had too. Is um, do you think this public health response is rather new, or do you think it's been there in the past, but maybe we're just in a new cycle of like, oh, we need to pay attention to this crisis. I mean, I think New York City is a unique example because we've had more treatment options available in the city for a longer period of time, you know, especially with the HIV AIDS crisis. Um, New York City sort of jumped on top of the the public health response um, much longer ago than other portions of the country. In more rural areas that more recently started to experience this opioid crisis, um, I think the, the public health response is much newer. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there are uh, fewer options available in those areas. Sure. Okay. I think it's interesting because um, when we look at 
substance abuse, I think people don't realize it's more than just who it affects at the individual level, but it affects, you know, their loved ones, um, family members, even like their communities. And if they're in a community that um, where there's a lot of substance abuse happening too, then somehow that community as a whole is affected. And it's like, it's a good reminder for me to like, as I hear you talking, um, to think about, you know, there are effects outside of that individual that happens, because I think we tend to focus really on those like, oh, what are like the chemical imbalances that are happening? Like, what are the treatment options for that individual? But, um, you know, things like counseling does come in where you start talking about, okay, well, let's say it is just this random teenager who has loving parents, but, um, you know, they're struggling through this, but, and I'm sure it's really difficult for the parents as well. Um, so it's kind of, I don't know, it, it kind of seems like it would be, it would have to be a team effort also to really support that person, um, and really help them along the way. So yeah, it's just a good reminder for me as well to think about beyond just individual. It's definitely much easier for I mean, I don't want to say much easier because recovering Mm -hmm. from any um, substance abuse disorder is going to be difficult. But having support of those close to you um, Mm -hmm. is definitely an important factor um, for people to uh, to decrease or stop their substance use. And once they have to avoid relapse. And what would you say to those people who do know someone in their life um, who is addicted and... Um, they want to support them, but they're not quite sure how, what, what's like, cause I think it's, it could be easy to fall into like, well, why don't like, you just need to stop using it, you know, words like that. And, um, and it's hard to, it's frustrating for maybe the individual who was trying to support to constantly see, oh, they're falling into this pattern again. Like, how do I, how do we stop this? So what's your suggestion then for people who do want to help? maybe a loved one, um, but they don't really know know what to do. I think the first step is becoming a little bit more informed about, you know, what is addiction first getting, getting a bit informed and then talking with the person, um, is the person already, you know, seeking help? Do they need help finding a place where they can receive treatment? Um, I think open communication is, is a big part. Um, and making it clear that you're not going to judge them, that you, you care about them and you, you want to help them get through this. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of support, what are some other things people can do to help like the community Mm -hmm. or other people that might not be like directly related to them? Like, is there something that people can do or to be prepared to help others? Yeah, so one of the main things that people can do, and your ability to do this is going to vary depending on where you live, but in New York City, it is much easier to do, and that is to get trained in Narcan or Naloxone. Um, So this is a substance that you can carry on you um, that can be used to reverse an overdose due to opioids. So that's stuff like heroin, fentanyl, prescription painkillers like Oxycontin and Percocet, stuff like that. Um, and you can get it in the form of a nasal spray. And if somebody, um, does overdose, you can be prepared to, to save their life. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a really critical thing that anybody can do. Anybody can be trained in how to use it, um, and get a free kit to carry along with them and a card saying that they're certified to use it. 
Um, so I think that's a, an incredibly important thing um, for everybody to be prepared to do. Sure. So that would be ideally available for free for anyone to, you know, get that training and then get the kit. Are there places where maybe the state is like, we're going to charge people to get a kit? Yeah, I know in New York City it's completely free. Um, you can you can get anybody can be trained to use it. I know in other states it's um, a little bit more closely regulated than it is here. Okay. Um, I think in some states you might need a prescription to carry it. Hmm. Um, yeah, so it's it. Yeah. How do you go? How, <laughs> how do you get a prescription for that? Yeah, I think it's. Don't this quote confusing. me on this. Yeah, but I know. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure that in some places, like you have to ask a doctor for a prescription for it, get it from a pharmacy to then um, carry it. Oh, that really limits who can get. Yeah, yeah, who can get that. But I know New York City has done, they've tried to do a very comprehensive job of making sure that people are trained in it, that anybody can get it. Um, And that has been a big effort by the city. Um, There's also an app that the city has that's called Stop ODNYC um, Mm -hmm. that walks you through what to do in in the event of an overdose and also tells you some places that you can get naloxone slash Narcan kits. That's really cool. That's really cool. I don't know what's the, do you know what the situation in Oregon is? I don't, but I do know that Oregon is in a pretty big crisis with opioids because there's a lot of rural communities here. Um, And so um, there are, I see it a lot around here and specifically focused on, when I see, I see it a lot. I mean, a lot of research done in like Oregon communities. and, you know, everyone that does that research that I've seen, the thing they mentioned is Oregon is pretty bad um, in terms compared to like the rest of the United States, like the situation is pretty bad. Um, that's all I really know um, when it comes to Oregon. But yeah, I don't know if I broke up a little bit because you guys froze a little bit. But <laughs> okay, yeah, I just... I, yeah, I just know Oregon, the situation seems to be, um, they're trying to work on it. But I think it is different from, like, New York City because it's yeah. more rural. And so trying to reach those communities and talk to those communities, I think, is one of those things that they're trying to do. Yeah, that's, it's definitely a, a difficulty in, in places that are either rural or even suburban. That there are mm-hmm. a, a lot fewer treatment options available. People have to travel further for them. I mean, can you imagine just here commuting from one borough to another every day to get your methadone dose versus, you know, in some other places, you might have to go a couple counties over to get your methadone dose. And obviously that would make it a lot harder for people. Sure. I've never actually physically seen someone um, who is, who's overdosed or who like is in that state and then we have to like act on it very quickly. (coughs) Probably because I'm out here in Oregon. (laughs) Um... But I, I've, I know of friends who've been in larger cities and they're like, yeah, we, we saw this person. We had to call an ambulance. Um, we had to like do some act very quickly because this person was clearly overdosing. Um, so what, like for people out there who may not know, what does that look like? Like, what are the signs that someone may be overdosing? And then if let's say you don't have like 
the kit or anything, what's like the number one thing you should do in that moment? So it can be hard to tell if somebody, as far as opioids go, it can be hard to tell if somebody is simply high or if they are actually overdosing. Um, mm-hmm. So there are a couple of things you can do. One, check to see if they're breathing, check to see if their skin has gone pale at all, um, especially on their hands, like their nails. Just really check to see if you can wake them up, um, okay. because if they are just high and they're not overdosing, you should be able to you know, stir them out of it a bit. And one thing you can do is called a sternum rub, where you sort of make a fist and you rub it against their sternum uh, with mm-hmm. some pressure, because um, you know that's kind of painful and that should wake somebody yeah. up. Um, if they are high and they are not overdosing. Um, so if you find that somebody is not breathing, um, their skin is torn, is turning sort of blue or purplish or gray. Um, if nothing you do wakes them up, then it is likely that they are overdosing. Um, so in that case, you know, if you have a a naloxone slash Narcan kit and you're trained to use it, you should go ahead and do that. If not, um, you should definitely call 911. Um, and another thing, and this is sad that we have to do this, um, is you ideally you really shouldn't say on 911 to the 911 operator that you think somebody is overdosing. You should say this person is passed out and they're not breathing and you don't know what's mm-hmm. wrong with them. Um, because unfortunately, sometimes if you do say that somebody is overdosing, it can take a lot longer for emergency help to arrive. That's counterintuitive. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? Is that just because they don't feel the same kind of urgency? Or? Exactly. It's prejudice, to be completely honest. Okay. Um, so just saying, you know, this person is passed out. They're not breathing. I don't know what happened. They need medical attention. Okay. <laughs> That's unfortunate. I mean, I feel like when you hear the words overdose, that that sets, at least for me, a sense of panic. Like, oh, we need to do something about this very quickly. Hey. It's... Yeah, it's sad. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the world makes me really mad. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing just to note, even if you do, if you are trained in Narcan and you do um, use Narcan on somebody, you should still definitely call 911 because the mm-hmm. half-life of Narcan is, is much shorter than that of, say, heroin. So the Narcan mm-hmm. will likely wear off before the heroin does and they could overdose again. Um, so oh, you should, okay. they should, you should still get them to the hospital. Isn't that also why the kit has two? Yeah. yeah. So, so kits, at least in New York City, come with two. Yeah. In it. yeah. So especially, also if the person has overdosed on a large amount, especially mm-hmm. you can need both, um, nasal sprays mm-hmm. or even more than that to even stop them overdosing in the first place. And then, you know, a couple hours later, they may even overdose again, even if you already used two. So you should definitely get them to the hospital. Huh. What's um what's the situation around? Because I feel like I remember in the past people have been arguing about creating like sterile needle stations where people can use. Um, and then there was a lot of contention around that because people felt that you're encouraging them to use drugs. But yeah, I don't know much about it. So do you have some insights on that? Yeah. So this is essentially from the branch of substance use of substance use research that focuses on harm reduction, which is a really important part. Um, So we already do have things like syringe exchange programs where people can go and give back their used needles and get clean needles, cookers, cottons, all of the supplies that somebody would need to inject um, that are sterile so that they can avoid transmission of, you know, things like HIV, HCV, getting abscesses from injecting, 
Um, you can even get infections of the heart from injecting. So it's really important to have these clean resources available for people. The other thing, which is what I think you're talking about, that has been even more controversy than syringe exchange programs, is having um, injection sites for people um, where they can come and they can inject. Um, and there's you know medical personnel, there's Narcan, Naloxone, all of that available in case somebody is to overdose. Um, so we don't currently have one in the U.S. Other, many other countries have implemented it. There have been efforts to try to implement it here, which are still sort of in contention. <laughs> so I think that that can be a, a very powerful way, a very par- powerful harm reduction tool, because if people are going to use it, it's best to make sure that it's done as safely as possible. Yeah. Um, in my opinion, I don't think providing this is going to make someone start injecting drugs. Um, but it is providing a safe place for them to do it, as well as having a connection between that person and other resources. You know, if somebody's just injecting at home in their bathroom, you know, that's not uh, leading them in any way to other services they can get, like treatment. Versus if they're going to a safe place where they can inject, that is also a way to then connect them with treatment options, the methadone program, counseling, and all of that. So it's a really a way to get people into the treatment system that may have never um, accessed any of those resources without yeah. a safe injection site. Yeah, I think it could feel very counterintuitive for someone who, um, you know, just like looks at it first glance, you know, and they're like, wait, you want people to go and inject drugs at a place where you're... It, it, it almost sounds like people are encouraged to, but... I think what you're getting at is, no, we're not, it's not about the encouragement. Like, these are people who have used drugs at some point, right? And there are a lot of um, health impacts that come with that, like you said, like a lot of infections that can occur, um, transmission of diseases, which is also a very serious part of this issue, right? Like, they're not completely separate things. And so really trying to think about this issue as a whole and tackling it in that way, the harm reduction way, I think is creative. Um, I don't know if that's the right word. (laughs) Um, Because it doesn't seem like, I don't know, like you, like with a lot of things, we immediately think, oh, prevention or treatment. But you're kind of meeting them in this like halfway point where you're like, okay, um, well, if you're going to do it anyway, let's do it safely. But also if this is a a, a way for you to find treatment for it, then like that's great too. Yeah. Do you know if um, how effective those programs have been? Um, they have been effective in other countries. I mean, there has been a, a lot of, again, a lot of controversy over yeah. whether or not they are ethical or whether or not they're effective, whether or not they should be in place. Um, we can also provide some links for people to go and, and look at some other research that's sure. been done in other countries. Um, like I said, they have tried, the, I don't know if you guys have heard about, there's one in uh, Pennsylvania that they've tried to get open and there's been a lot of contention over mm-hmm. over whether or not they actually are going to be able to um, and, you know, sort of the law surrounding that. Yeah, so it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, but it is, I think it is something that can definitely be a powerful both harm reduction tool and linkage to treatment. I have a I mean, I don't know that you know the answer to this, if harm reduction isn't very widely implemented in America or in the U.S. Is it, like, does it appear that harm reduction may be more effective than, like, detox programs? 
because it's like a completely different like approach than detox. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know the specifics on that. Yeah. Um, just thinking about it in sort of a logic perspective, I would imagine that it is. Yeah. Um, because, you know, detox can be very difficult in that you very quickly lower somebody off it. They're not using the drug anymore. Yeah. And then you send them right back out there into yeah. the world that, mm-hmm. you know, they first started using the substances in, in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, detox on its own without any other supporting mechanisms can you know, already set someone up for, for fail, failure, for relapse. Harm reduction is a way of saying, you know, it's totally up to you whether you're not, whether you're going to decrease your use, stop your use or continue as it is. We want you to do it as safely as possible. And even when you're ready, here are the other options that you can pursue. Which, to me, just logically makes a lot more sense. (laughs) I think it's like, I'm I'm trying to think, like, what are ways that we can empower individuals to, um, you know, continue that fight towards fighting the addiction, right? Because I think, um, what am I trying to get at? Because I think... For a lot of other um, public health issues like chronic diseases or even, you know, infectious sometimes, um, a lot of, I think, public health approaches, let's say for, um, like, we just did a cancer episode, you know, like we talked about what are ways that people can find hope or be empowered to just, like, move forward. Um, and I think I think with this angle on substance abuse, it's interesting because it's... Um, if, if you take a public health approach, you're, you're taking the responsibility off the individual. Like a lot of that weight is off the individual. And then you start seeing it as like, you know, this, like you mentioned earlier, you know, like taking that stigma off. And so I feel like the harm reduction aspect, um, that approach in a way can be really empowering because you're giving that agency back to the individual and saying like, here are your options, you know, number one, we're going to give you a safe space to make these decisions. Um, but number two, like here are your options and we're here to support you in the event that you choose, you know, A, B or C. So I think, <clears throat> I think it would be really important for us to continue to put light on that because like you said, it's, um, like it can be a really tough thing to go through and it's not, it's not something that you can just turn off <laughs> at a certain point and just be like, I'm not addicted today. Like this, nope, not a part of my life anymore. Uh, I think that any approach to substance abuse has to be a multi-pronged approach. Mm -hmm. Um, Because yes, you know, medical treatment options like methadone and buprenorphine and then counseling um, can be very, very helpful for the individual. But again, if you don't address the underlying issues, let's say if a person is homeless and, you know, they get on a methadone program and they're no longer um, using heroin per se, you know, it's still going to be very hard for them to find stable housing and get a job, particularly if, let's say, they've been incarcerated before because of their use. Mm -hmm. So it can be highly likely that they're going to relapse if they have to remain in that same situation Mm -hmm. that they were in. So really, I think it's a a combination of all the approaches to prevent people from beginning to use in the first place, um, to make it safer if they are using, um, to help them find treatment if they are using, um, and then to help, again, to help prevent relapse, you again need those social determinant approach. So, 
So you mentioned a lot of areas, right? So like what I'm hearing is there's like medical treatments, but then there's also issues like housing and then there's like income and all those different aspects. And so like in me, in my mind, I'm like, wow, that that requires a very, very comprehensive, well-funded program <laughs> to carry that individual and to support them. Right. Um, and and then, you know, realistically, I'm like, well, there's not really a lot of programs like that out there for any kind of public health issue. Um, so so then that requires a lot of coordination, right? Like housing services need to work together with um, like other community services that maybe do harm reduction. So in New York City, like what's the coordination? Like, is there pretty good coordination among all those different areas? I think there are some programs. I think some of the programs that have been the most successful are the ones that are highly coordinated and multi-pronged. Yeah. But unfortunately for most people, um, it's very difficult. I talk to a lot of people who are like, oh, okay. I just came for my methadone appointment. Now later I have to go see my caseworker. And then after that, I have to go see the caseworker for housing. And, you know, it's a full-time job just trying to just sort all those things out. Right. So then when are they going to actually find a job yeah. and, like, earn money? Yeah. That's so it can, it can make it very difficult for somebody um, who already having an unstable life is going to be a stressor that can prompt somebody to use. Mm-hmm. So it, it can be very, very difficult. Yeah. A lot of work to do. It's a lot of information. <laughs> it's like a lot of things. I feel it like I, I could ask so many more questions forever, but <laughs> we don't have forever. Okay, well, <laughs> you've given us a lot of really great information, so thank you for that. Um, I'll definitely reach out because you are clearly and very well-versed in this topic. <laughs> But before we end things, is there anything that neither of us, me or Diana, have mentioned that you would really like to put out there or anything that you want to expand on more that we already have talked about? There is just one thing I want to add that, you know, we haven't talked about much in this that plays a really big role. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, the war on drugs that has been going on for a very long time now. Um, And makes it a lot harder for people, like I said, if somebody has been incarcerated because of their drug use, simply because, you know, they had a a bag of heroin on them, that's going to make it much, much harder to resume a stable life without drugs once they get out of prison. Um, So I think that is a a big focus is decriminalization um, of use and of possession and potentially even of small time dealing because most people who do deal drugs do it to support their own habit and most are small time dealers. So I think that's a big role. So if it's not completely decriminalized, also just uh, completely removing mandatory minimums for drug possession. Um, There have been efforts that have reduced those substantially, but reducing that even more. What are mandatory minimums? So essentially, if somebody is caught with a certain amount of, let's say, heroin or crack, Mm -hmm. whatever drug it may be, there will be a mandatory amount of time that they have to be sentenced to if found guilty. The judge can't say, okay, no, I'm only going to give you six months. They can be required to say, depending on how much it was, I have to give you at least five years. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that is definitely something that needs to be worked towards removing. Side question for that, just my own curiosity. How do they decide those mandatory minimums? Like, were they like, oh, two pounds, two years? Like, <laughs> very arbitrarily and actually quite in a in a prejudice way. 
um, for a very long time. Um, there was a large gap between how much you needed to be caught with um, for both cocaine and, and crack. So crack tends to be used more in impoverished communities and communities of color, whereas powder cocaine um, is more in the in slightly more higher socioeconomic status groups. Uh-huh. Um, and for a very long time, the amount of cocaine that you had to be caught with to get the same sentence as somebody caught with crack was you had to be caught with a hundred times more cocaine. Oh than crack. My God. That has now been reduced to eighteen times as much That's cocaine. Still too many That's times. Crack. Was there like a just scientific justification from hundred to eighteen? There was no scientific <laughs> justification for wow. this. Um, and honestly, it is very arbitrary and um, yeah. likely um, prejudice based. <sighs> okay. Um, so, I mean, there has been efforts to, you know, reduce this. Obviously, we got it from 100 to 18 times. Yeah. Um, but I think we can do a little bit better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mandatory minimums. Anything else that you want to address? The other major thing yeah. that I wanted to I touch on. It's not something I even thought of. Yeah. I know. Yeah, which is like, I feel like that's also a whole other issue is that so many people don't even know what are all the factors and yeah. things that are going into all of this, right? Like, yeah. you just, we only, we only know as much as, like, we're exposed to. Yeah. Susanna, you and I are already in public health, and we're like, what? <laughs> so, yeah. like, that's a well, problem. Well, I'm thinking about, like, the, because, you know, we've been talking essentially about all these different pipelines um, in terms of, like, usage, but then treatments and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just thinking, like, it's horrible if you think about someone of a lower socioeconomic status. Maybe they were dealing, like, a very small amount of drugs, but they weren't using it personally. They needed it to support their family. They get a mandatory minimum, let's say, of however many years, and then they serve that. They come out. Their record is now not good, so they can't really get employed. They're still not in a good economic situation for their family. So then, I don't know, like, maybe they do generally try really hard to support and get a job but it's so hard so then they turn back to dealing (laughs) and it's like it's so frustrating to think about that yeah yeah i have plenty of participants that i work with who have been in jail for decades before for simple simple possession or low low scale dealing um and it's sad because it's so many years of their life and by the time they get out especially if they went in when they were very young you know they don't know how to exist in today's society especially finding a job has changed the process a lot in the past 20 years so even just that without the barrier of having been incarcerated even if you're not looking at that you know they haven't existed in society for a really long time you're doing a really important work. Well, um, I think that's a good... A <laughs> nice, <laughs> uplifting spot to end on. <laughs> Great times. <laughs> and that's the episode. Thank you so much, Brooke, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach them by email at brooke.wiles at nyu.edu. And the resources for this episode and the transcript are all up on the website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. Thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass, Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thanks for listening.